what if an attack conducted by someone who have a long trainings of four years trainings with ISIS in Syria and Iraq go back home to Indonesia and conduct a terror attack they have more experience to do a massive terror attack comparing with Afif Sunaki The five guiding principles of our national life. This is Indonesia In-Depth. My name is Sean Corrigan. Today we are in the Indonesian parliament to speak with Rakyan Adibrata. Rakyan has been following Islamic extremism in Indonesia and specializes in counterterrorism. He is an advisor to both House Commission 1 and 11 on topics such as terrorism financing, terror organizations, and de-radicalization. Commission 1 oversees defense and security, among other areas, and Commission 11 oversees finance and banking. Also interestingly, Rakyan has also worked with the Indonesia Witness and Victim Protection Agency, or LPSK, and has been involved firsthand with the repatriation of Indonesian deportees attempting to enter Syria. Rakyan, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. We covered the history of Islamic radicalization in Indonesia in a previous episode, so I'd like to talk today about where things stand now with terrorism and how things might be going forward when it comes to terror groups and acts of terrorism in Indonesia. Aman Abdurrahman, the de facto leader of Juma Ancharut Daula, or JAD, which is a terrorist group, was sentenced to death by an Indonesian court. He is said to be JAD's chief ideologist and has pledged allegiance to ISIS. Pat Rakyan, when would his execution take place? Could it be years? Could it be uh, this year? What's the process look like? So the process, the current process is the court give a seven days to Aman Abdurrahman and his lawyer whether they want to go appeal or not to appeal. If they choose not to appeal, then that's it. They accept the, the verdicts, which is the death sentences. But the things regarding on Indonesian law, it can takes years until the going to face the, the death squad. So during that time, everything could happen. If I may predict the possibility if Ahmad Abdurrahman and his lawyer choose not to appeal, the possibility of the executions will be after the, the presidential election, which is after May 2019. What impact will his sentencing have on the organization of JAD? Not much, honestly. We know that JAD is a the current organizations the only perhaps the only organizations in Indonesia the biggest one who pledge allegiance to ISIS. Let me talk a little bit about the, the, the history of JAD. Previously, it was JAT, the Jama Ansurat Tauhid, led by Abu Bakar Bashir. Then, after he being arrested, it being replaced by his colleagues, uh, Ustad Akhwan, who became the Amir bin Ibiyah, the Amir in emergency situations. But again, Ustad Akhwan disagree with Abu Bakar Bashir regarding on pledging allegiance to ISIS. Instead, they split out and taking around 90% of the total members inside the Jama'a Ansur Tauhid and form another organization called the Jama'a Ansur Sharia. So it's just only around 10% of Jama'a Ansur Tauhid, which at that time choose to pledge allegiance to ISIS. 
and they form it together with the Tauhid Wal Jihad, an organization that was belong to Aman Abdurrahman, and form new organizations called the Jama'at Surataullah. So the fallout was between the supporters of Abu Bakar Bashir. The, the 90% of the Jama'at Surataullah disagree in pledging allegiance to ISIS. They still think that it will be in their favor to supporting Al-Qaeda and Jama'at Islamiyah, while Abu Bakar Bashir and 10% of his followers inside Jama'at Surataullah still believe that they need to pledge allegiance to ISIS under Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So Abu Bakr Bashir wanted to support ISIS? Yes. So the situation is during 2014, during the Ramadan, the, the split out. So at that time, before they choose to split out, the current Amir at that time, Ustaz Ahwan, choose to split out, bringing 90% of the, the member of Jama'an Surah Tawheed. There was a group of delegations being sent from Jamal Ansur Tawhid to go to Syria to check, to learn, to do research to whom they need to give a support to. At that time, there was a split of opinions. Some of the delegations said that we doesn't need to support ISIS. While at that time, one of the one of the right hand men of Abu, Abu Bakr al Bashir, named Natafif Sunakim, who said that we need to support ISIS at that time. So there was a split and the splits ends quite badly because Abu Bakr Basir mentioned to, to the current Amir at that time which is uh, uh, Ustad uh, Akhwan say that JAT, the Jama'an Surah Tawhid is belong to me so you, if you want to create a new one you need to go out and bring all your men with you so that's why Ustad Akhwan including uh, bringing a lot of people including one of the sons of uh, Abu Bakar Bashir, uh, Ustaz uh, Abdurrahim Bashir, to go join with him and creating Jama'an Surah So even Iim Bashir, or Abdul Rahim, Abdul Rahim Bashir, the son of uh, Abu Bakar Bashir, disagree with his father. Interesting. Interesting. And at that time, Abu Bakar Bashir was in prison? Yes. So the dynamics still happen even though he is inside the prison. Just a, a side point here. If Abu Bakr Bashir is in prison, how is he determining, you know, the, the, the future of, of this organization and communicating with his followers and, and making these big decisions? How, how does that happen if he's in prison? It's still quite easy during that, the previous administrations, during the Yodoyono administrations. It's still quite easy to, to meet Bashir inside the prisons. Not just only Bashir, but also Aman Abdurrahman. That's why during that time, before the Tamrin attack, it's still accessible to visit Abu Bakr Bashir and Aman Abdurrahman. And that's why that they they able to communicate, uh, create a policy and make a decisions. So he was allowed to have guests come? Yes. And there was no monitoring of the conversations? Well, there's some monitoring, but not that close. It's unclear when Aman's execution would take place? I do believe that even though, for example, it's going to be an execution, it won't take place during or before the presidential elections. In 2019, because, April yeah, of 2019. It's, it's simply because it will affect the political dynamics as well. And he has been moved from Jakarta or will be moved, I think he has been moved uh, from Jakarta to Nusa Kambangan, which is in central Java, a prison facility, high yeah. security prison facility. Yes. Will he still have influence over the group? He had influence over the group while in prison in Jakarta. Will he continue to have influence while on death row in Nusa Kambangan prison in central Java? Well, regarding on influence, there's a couple of things needs to be underlined. 
if you mention regarding on access, is totally inaccessible to visit Abu Bakar Bashir and Aman Abdurrahman after the Tamrin attack in 2000 in January 2016. The government have a strict regulations after the attack where just only a list of names able to meet and visit Abu Bakar Bashir and Aman Abdurrahman. And those names are only his closest relative, which is for example wife and kids and including doctors and lawyers. Beside that, it's totally impossible for you to visit them. Not like before when everyone can visit him. So uh, based on that, the possibility in spreading narrative, in spreading message, hidden message through uh, writing, so on and so forth, it's almost impossible to do because everyone who visits those ideologues is closely monitored now, comparing with the previous administration. So that has changed since the Tamron attacks in Jakarta yeah. in 2016. Do you believe there will be any um, planned or uh, revenge attacks from JAD as a result of this death sentence? For sure, the possibility of retaliations is still quite, quite big, but not now, not before the execution takes place. So I don't think there will be a possible terror attacks as as part of retaliations because there is nothing harm done yet to Aman Abdurrahman. That was a sermon recording by Aman Abdurrahman, which remains available online. Aman was speaking about the supremacy of Islamic law and stated, quote, the Indonesian parliament is part of the legislative branch that drafts laws. Lawmaking itself is the creation of disbelievers, unquote. I also need to mention regarding on the influence. I already mentioned regarding on the possibility of visiting Aman Abdurrahman and Abu Bakar Bashir, which is almost impossible to do if you are outsiders, outside the list of names that allowed by the governments to visit those ideologues. But influence, it's still there in the Telegram channels where they still posting dozens of, of books created or translated by Aman, Aman Abdurrahman or his preachings in audio formats that's still being circulated among the jihadi today. So even though they cannot access Amlan Abdurrahman inside the prisons, his words, writings still still can reach a lot of people. Yeah, so his ideology or teachings still live on after he's in, yes. imprisoned. So his influence, it's still, it's still quite strong outside. You have followed terrorism issues uh, in Indonesia for 18 years now? More or less. More or less 18 years. In 2002, a well-planned and well-executed attack in Kutubali by Jamaat Islamiyah, or JI as it's locally called, killed over 200 people. For most of the 2000s, JI seemed to be targeting Western or Western-affiliated targets. The JI leader, Abu Bakr Bashir, is serving a long prison sentence for his role in the organization. Can you talk a little bit about the split uh, within JI, which then resulted in these splinter groups uh, such as JAD? And it seems in recent years that these terrorists have shifted from targeting less Western 
targets in Indonesia to more focusing on targets such as the Indonesian police and hoping to target even the President Yudhoyono and President uh, Widodo in the past. The situation right now, it's the, the dynamics inside the jihadi circle, it's quite fascinating comparing with 10 years ago. In the early 2000s, the characteristic of attacks always big, always trying to find big casualties, need to be massive. The message that the Jemaah Islam are trying to achieve is always massive casualties, always big, everyone going to cover the stories, so on and so forth, to create a mass terror. Always something like that. The characteristic is quite, it's quite different uh, comparing with the modus operandi of the ISIS followers or sympathizers in Indonesia currently. Yeah, it's fascinating and important history on, on these groups and organizations. President Widodo's entire presidency uh, has been based on economic development. Mm. Are terrorist organizations in Indonesia interested in targeting uh, economic interests in Indonesia in a move to maybe weaken uh, the Widodo administration and perhaps uh, other institutions in the country, say in a similar manner as um, Al-Qaeda hoped to do in the United States in the 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City? I don't see that at the moment. I'm actively monitoring the, some of the telegram channel that being used by the pro-ISIS in Indonesia for communicating among each other. There's not so much narrative related in disrupting economy or disrupting democracy in Indonesia as part of their bigger plan in controlling the country. It's not like during the Juma Islamia era which they are well organized comparing with this uh, new organization called Jemaah Surat Daula. They doesn't have a very organized methods in disrupting the current governments related with the security, economy, conditions, so on and so forth. Their tactics mostly being conducted by the sympathizers using a small amount of IEDs or even just simply two terror attacks, even using a kitchen knife. Mm -hmm. And that's what they literally conducted right now. It's not as big as or as massive as the terror attack conducted by Jemaah Islamiyah. Mm -hmm. So having these members take the, their own initiative and in conducting any attacks that they can do on their own. Um, That's the main differences between Jemaah Islamiyah and ISIS. Jemaah Islamiyah, before conducting a terror attacks, it needs to have a consensus, a jama'ah consensus within themselves. No one or should not create a terror attack without a consensus from the, the whole organizations, but not in jihad. Everyone can conduct mm -hmm. a terror attack by themselves without any approvals mm. or discussions to any leaders inside the organizations. So it's far less structured and organized and coordinated Precisely. as JI once was. Kami butuh perdamaian, bukan kekacauan Kami ingin persatuan, bukan perpecahan Lawan teroris, kami lawan teroris Lawan teroris, kami lawan teroris Apa yang kalian inginkan dari negara ini Sampai mesti kalian bunuh satu bangsa sendiri Tak punya otak karena otak sudah mati Kalian binatang bukan manusia lagi Anak kecil sampai dewasa kalian beralat kalian beri The 2018 Asian Games will be held in August this year in Jakarta and also in um, Palembang, Sumatra. There are 45 countries participating. Uh, is this a potential target for terrorist organizations? 
Now we need to talk regarding on the target of attack of the, the JAD comparing with Jemaah Islamia. In the past, Jemaah Islamia attacking especially foreigners, foreign targets, or something related with the Westerns. The latest attack indeed conducted by the Jamaah Surdaulah affiliates attacking Starbucks in 2016. But from my own point of view, their hatred against police against the governments, Indonesian governments to be precise, is more bigger than their hatreds against the Western symbols. So if we can make a comparisons, the Jemaah Islamah for sure they will attack foreigners in a massive ways, not just only like shootings or using a knife to stab a foreigners, because it's not their characteristic, need to be massive. massive. Because they have a political message that need to be uh, sent to the governments. We can do a massive thing, so on and so forth. But not ISIS. With a simple knife, they can attack a police officers. For example, like, of course there is a number of people say there is a number of foreigners also being attacked during the, uh, the Tamrin uh, incidents. Yes, but if, if I can uh, use their mindset, in conducting terror attacks, if there is one foreigners standing together with one police officers, and I am Afif Sunakim, the preparators who shoot guns, uh, who conduct the terror attack at that time, I will shot the police officers first, then the, the foreigners. Why is that focus on the police? Is it because of their severe crackdown or on yes, terrorist groups? Especially because of that. They consider the police as Anshorut Tagut. Anshorut means the helpers of Tagut governments. Tagut is they who crossing the land, the lines. The, they using the word of Tagut to the Indonesian government because they are crossing the lines not to following the Islamic principles. So they consider the government as Tagut and the police is the one who helping the Tagut government, the Anshorut Tagut. So their hatreds against the police is in their bones. They hate it very badly. And that's why I say to you that, for example, if there is a foreigners and a police officer using uniforms, the person that they will shoot first or stab first is the police than the foreigners. If it's just only foreigners with Indonesian civilians, for sure the, the person that being stabbed or being shot first is the foreigners. That's what happened during the, the Starbucks. There's no police officer inside the Starbucks but they saw numbers of foreigners and they attack at first. Based on your explanation just now, so do you see the Asian Games far out of their reach or off their radar? For sure it will be Post on radar. their wish list because there will be no terror without media. What I'm trying to say is it will be easy enough to get a media attractions if you do a terror attack during the Asian Games. But attacking whom? For me, a police officers who's standing alone or police officers who are grouping are an easy target comparing a foreigners who become an athlete. So the terror magnets is not the foreigners who become an athlete in Asian games, but instead the police officers. It will be much easier to attack the police officers who, you know, for example, standing in a group, easy target for 
by uh, attacking using a ra car, you know, ramming by mm -hmm. car, for example. Mm -hmm. Which we've seen and happened many times in Europe. Yes, and seeing one time conducted in the, the Polda Riau. There was an attack after the Surabaya. For first time, a ISIS sympathizers using car ramming strategy attacking a police officers in Riau. So there was no explosives no. In, in, in the, uh, the vehicle? In the car, no. It was used totally as a ramming weapon? Yeah. If there's an attack during Asian Games, the possibility of attacks is against the police instead of the, the, the athletes. What about the election itself in 2019? The national election, presidential election, would that be a, a target for them? Actually, not just for JAD, but for any Honestly, any there, there was two groups, there is a two cells being disrupted by police uh, in the last, in, in, in the weekend. Two of the groups are planning to do a terror attack during the local elections. I agree with the possibility of terror attack during the local elections or during the presidential or the legislative elections. The possibility of terror attack is still quite the same. Instead of attacking the, the pool stations or attacking the voters, for me the possibility of terror attack is to the police who guarding the pool stations instead of attacking a normal uh, common civilians. That was the sound from a raid on terror suspects in 2017 by the Indonesian Counterterrorism Police Force, known as Detachment 88. Can we shift towards uh, the repatriation of terrorists from abroad back home? Sure. Uh, some of the original Jamaat Islamiyah members had experience and training in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and they brought those skills back to Indonesia. Hmm. It seems that, correct me if I'm wrong, that many of the bad actors nowadays don't have such skills and training. Uh, Aman Abdurrahman, the head of JAD, and many of his followers have no training or combat experience, for example. Indonesian foreign fighters or would-be foreign fighters in Iraq and Syria are said to be less than a thousand in total, is that correct? Yes, so the total numbers, well, it's, there's some differences numbers, but, but in total, it's not more than thousands. And that's including women and children, is that yes. accurate? Yes. Um, so this, that number is actually uh, relatively small considering the size of Indonesia. Especially the number of as Indonesia as the biggest Muslim population in the world. Exactly. The number yeah. that Indonesians who went joining ISIS and failed in the process and being deported back by Turkish government, for example, mm -hmm has reached around 500 individuals in the last five years. So around half of these people never made it to the conflict zones. They were stopped uh, by authorities in Turkey yes. or elsewhere. While around 500 successfully joined ISIS. That's we talk regarding on deportees. Indeed, the number of deportees has reached more than 580. But what about numbers of returnees? We have less dozens of individuals returning as an FTF back to Indonesia, foreign terrorist fighters. So the total numbers of FTF who successfully returning back by their own is still less than dozens. Comparing, for example, like number of FTF returning to Europe. The big wave of returnees hasn't reached the shores yet. It just only ripples. But that's 
for me really dangerous because with the, the shrinking now the shrinking of the territories of ISIS in Middle East for sure 500 individuals of Indonesians 500 plus of Indonesian who went joining ISIS as a FTF sooner or later they will return back to Indonesia bringing back uh, experience uh, yes. combat experience potentially bomb making experience and other yes skills for sure. And the skills, it's maybe slightly better than numbers of jihadi who joined in the, the Afghanistan war during the 80s, where there are groups of Indonesians, especially the Jama Islamia, who joined the conflicts in Afghanistan at that time. So this would be a big boost to for sure organizations uh, such as JAD. I, I always and yeah I always mention like this. What if the same terror attack conducted by a well-trained combatant who have four years trainings in Syria? Because Afif Sunakim and his group who conduct terror attacks in January 2016, they even doesn't have a proper training at all, nor never, never join any proper training outside the country. For example, Mindanao, so on and so forth. During the, the Tamrin attack in 2016, We've seen the capability of Afif Sunakim and his team conducting an urban warfare, if I may say that, that word, an active shooters for the first time in Jakarta. They have a zero knowledge in trainings, both inside the country and outside the country. Afif Sunakim in, indeed have a IDAT or the paramilitary trainings in Janto, a mountain in Aceh in 2010, but it lasts than one week. So there's a group of individuals who have a lack of knowledge and trainings able to create a massive terror attack during the January 2016 in Tamrin, Jakarta. What if an attack conducted by someone who have a long trainings, a four years trainings with ISIS in Syria and Iraq, go back home to Indonesia and conduct a terror attack. They have more experience to do a massive terror attack comparing with Afif Sunakim. That's for sure. So if we have a problem responding or preventing terror attacks conducted by a lack of trainings, individuals like Afif Sunakim, wait until we meet with those who have. So JAD and organizations such as that are desperately in need of these skilled and combat-ready fighters that could return from, say, Syria. What are Indonesian authorities doing to prevent such actors from creating terror in Indonesia? Are they being monitored when they come back? Are they even allowed to come back? The number of deportees who are being deported back has reached more than 580 people in the last four years since 2014 that being deported back, especially by the, the Turkish governments. But are those are majority people who never made it to the battlefield? Who never made it to the battlefield. And the ones who are, who made it? It's um, around 500, but then the number of returnees is still less than dozens. Uh, there's two things. Now, first is how to address the issues regarding on deportees. And the second is regarding on how to prevent people returning back as a FTF. The first regarding on the deportees, there's a lack of information regarding on names of individuals who are being deported back to Indonesia between 2014 and 15. But indeed, the Jokowi administrations have a better list of names 
better database regarding on people who being returned uh, who being deported back to Indonesia between 2016, 2015. President Joko Widodo always mentioned that we need to revise it as soon as possible. The problem is, it takes two years until it's finished. Indeed, it has numbers of issues that need to be underlined, and to create a consensus is a really difficult time to do. That's why it takes two years. But because of that, we have a lack of legal framework. Uh, the impact was these 500 individuals who are being deported back to Indonesia cannot be prosecuted. Yeah, so the law wasn't keeping up with the yes. developments. So you can imagine, for example, between 2016, 2017, and 2018, the number of the, the number of deportees in 2018 is just only around less than dozens. But in 2017, the number reached around 170 or 80 individuals. So those people who are being returned back to Indonesia, we just only able to rehabilitate them for not more than one month. What can a one month program in rehabilitation change someone? There's not so many things that can be done in one month of rehabilitation for sure because the characteristic of individuals, uh, the psychological characteristic of people who being deported back instead of being returned by themselves, it's totally different. Yang mereka inginkan itu hanya kekuasaan, hanya harta sama hanya wanita itu yang yang, yang kami kesimpulan yang kami lihat selama kami di sana. Tapi kenyataannya apa yang kita lihat ISIS bukannya semakin melebar, semakin kuat, bahkan dia semakin menyempit menyempit. Itu tandanya apa? Tandanya mereka bukan menegakkan kalimat Allah seperti yang mereka katakan. That was a wife of an Indonesian ISIS fighter describing her experience in Syria. She said that her and her husband became interested in joining ISIS as a result of propaganda online. But what they saw was far different from what they expected. She said, quote, Based on what I saw, ISIS only wants power, wealth, and women. They say that the caliphate is growing, but it's actually shrinking, unquote. The wife and the husband were eventually able to leave Syria and return to Indonesia. There was one group of family. The head of family's uh, name is uh, Mr. Joko Wiwoho. He was the directors of a big organizations in Batam Island, Riau. His family was self-radicalized and they went into Syria and able to penetrate into Raqqa. But then they found out that all the propaganda was a lie. They doesn't see the true Islam mentioned by the, the propaganda videos. Since they saw that everything is totally a BS, they using a smugglers to smuggle themselves to the refugee camp in a Turkish border 
and ask the Indonesian governments to repatriate them back to Indonesia because apparently it's not as good as the propaganda say. Not as good as advertised. Yeah. yeah. But they know the whole truth. So you're saying that the family then returned and were able to be de-radicalized because they saw firsthand that it wasn't what they thought it was going to be yeah. and they understood and were able to be rehabilitated or, or de-radicalized? Precisely. Okay. And they also play an important role. The Jokowi Wahos family play an important role together with BNPT, the National Counterterrorism Agency, in creating a, a counter-narrative uh, statements and videos. Mm-hmm. But there's numbers of individuals, for example, who still think that the advertising is so good that they're going to find in, in Syria is as good as the advertisement. So they are trapped into the mindset that everything inside the Islamic Caliphate is wonderful because they haven't seen the truth yet. They got apprehended and being returned back to Indonesia with the same, still the same mindset that from their perspective, it's still really running really good inside the Islamic Caliphate. So trying to de-radicalize the deportees is more difficult in de-radicalizing the people who already seen the truth. But the numbers is more than 500 of people who still think that it's so beautiful inside the Islamic Caliphate because they never got the opportunity to see the Mm -hmm. truth yet. Yet, the legal framework doesn't give an opportunity or an authority to the governments to apprehend them too long to be de-radicalized. Instead, they just only must go to a rehabilitation center and rehabilitated for one month. Well, speaking on the legal framework, will the newly passed anti-terrorism bill have an impact on reducing terrorism threat and also improve the um, de-radicalization program here in Indonesia? It was a very controversial draft bill uh, that provided authorities with preventative measures, allowed for the military to play a role in the fight against terrorism, and also allowed for suspects to be detained for an extended period of time. Uh, what are your thoughts? You have you played a role in, in this bill. Uh, what are your thoughts on this and, and how successful will it be and how helpful? Well, give a lot of new authority to the government, especially law enforcement, to take a better measures in addressing to the current problems. The old law is really an effective law. It's an effective tool against the Jemaah Islamia. But we simply need a bigger gun to fight a bigger enemy, which is ISIS. We cannot use the old law because numbers of things, an MO, a modus operandi conducted by ISIS, is not being stipulated in the old law. For example, like FTF. No one talked regarding on FTF during Jemaah Islamia. There's no returnees. There's no deportees. There's nothing related on that. There's no foreign fighters. For sure, number of things related on things like that need to be mentioned inside the new bill, and we did it. So everyone, for example, who did uh, trainings, uh, military trainings inside the country, uh, paramilitary trainings inside the country or outside the country, in order to do terror attacks, can be prosecuted. Anyone who helped every individual who do or to participating in paramilitary trainings for terror attacks inside the country or outside the country can be prosecuted as well, including uh, preparing or spreading documents for trainings related on, for example, how to make an ID, improvised explosive devices, can be prosecuted. 
the law enforcement now have a better tools, better legal framework to develop the case so they can bring it people like this to justice. Terrorist. But there is another things that need to be underlined as well regarding on the role of the TNI that being mentioned during the uh, inside the law that it needs a presidential decree to regulate regarding on the role of the military in preventing of terror attacks. We still need to wait until the president passed the presidential decree regarding on the role of the military. So the presidential decree will provide more clarity on the role, the, the exact role of the military when it, it could be used. It will discuss in the fight more. Yes, it will discuss more on detail regarding on the technical aspect on who's doing what and how to do it. So you're optimistic that this new anti-terror law will have a, an impact on, say, reducing uh, terrorism or the terrorist threat in Indonesia? We need to have a optimism regarding on that. We create a better legal framework now comparing with the old law. It can become an uh, sufficient tools for the law enforcement. One thing that needs to be underlined as well, as we also put some articles to make sure there's an accountability in preventing of the potential of human rights abuses conducted by law enforcement. Which was a big concern from civil yes. society groups, yes. Yeah. There's nothing related on this in the previous law. We know it's really important. There's no uh, human rights abuses by the law enforcement in countering terrorism. We've seen ISIS in the news headlines now for several years. Very rarely we hear about Al-Qaeda in the news. How do you compare the threats between ISIS and Al-Qaeda? Which one is, is the bigger threat in your, in your opinion? Some people and some governments always mention that ISIS is more dangerous than, than Jemaah Islamiyah or ISIS is more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. I strongly disagree with that. Just because one organization is not using or using a different tactics than the others doesn't make them less dangerous, for sure. Because the characteristic of the two evils are completely different one in another. What I'm trying to say is Jema Islamia still having a lot of people with a strong experience in conducting terror attacks. Me, myself, for example, I did some research and meet some of the old old school J.I. and they mentioned that according to him those ISIS is so amateur when I ask why they say easily to be apprehended by the police there's no fights the explosive that they made mostly either too small or prematurely exploded by themselves it's an amateurish work according to people who are well trained today plan to go back and create terror attacks? Well, not yet. But look at from the other perspective. In the terms of propaganda, the, the narrative they're trying to sell by the ISIS is the establishment of the Islamic Caliphates, which is, is hard to sell in Indonesia. In creating Islamic Caliphate is changing the whole idea of the ideology of the, the great nation of Indonesia. But on the other hand, Jemaah Islamia have a different 
things to sell, which is not establishing Islamic caliphates, but simply upholding the Islamic law, which is so easy to sell comparing with the other products that being trying to sell by the ISIS. If you talk to Indonesian people, which one that you want to take, whether establishing a new uh, Islamic law or establishing a Islamic caliphate, for sure it will be much easier to find people who have a strong interest in upholding and, and establishing Islamic law in Indonesia without changing the whole context of the ideology of the country. It will be hard to find people who really want to have an eagerness to support Islamic caliphates. That's why the number of the ISIS supporters in Indonesia is not that big, comparing with the people. If you're trying to find someone who have a strong support with Islamic law, it will be much easier to find. Bismillah, bulan puasa, suci luar biasa, hati diasa, iman pun perkasa, jalani dengan ikhlas, bukan terpaksa, kendalikan nafsu agar kita tak binasa, melatih disiplin waktu, mencari makan, lebih pagi sebelum subuh, sahur seadanya, sederhana saja. Indonesia is a country who have a very long history and experience dealing with terrorism. It's not starting from 2000s, but way back then. The first president of Indonesia was planned to being assassinated by the, a group called, called themselves as NEE, or Negara Islam Indonesia, Indonesian Islamic State, back there in, in 1950s. During President Suharto, there is a couple of texts conducted by, ter by terrorists. What I'm trying to say is this long history of knowledge and experience give us a best practices in Southeast Asia comparing with other countries. And one of the things that we're trying to share with South Asian countries especially is this big concepts of countering terrorism, not using a hard approach methods, but using the combination between hard and a soft approach. And one of the effective ways in sharing the best practices is through the, the conference that we are trying to plan in conducting in 2018 in Jakarta. If I may, I will strongly endorse everyone who listening to this podcast to join the conference and see for yourself and learn more about the Indonesian strategy in counting tourism, not using the hard approach. So this conference is uh, HLS, or Homeland Security Indonesia 2018, will be conducted on the 19th and 20th of September of this year at the Jakarta Convention Center. So it'll be a conference on counterterrorism, homeland security, and law enforcement. Who will be joining and who will be speaking at, at this uh, conference? For the two days conference, 80% of the speaker will be Indonesian governments. The INP, the Indonesian National Police, the National Counterterrorism Agency, the Ministry of Law and Human Rights, including the National Counter Narcotics Agency. And the conference itself is being endorsed by those four agencies. I see. Is it open to the public or how do they register or how do they um, get in well, touch? You, well, you can check the, the website. It can be reached to the uh, www.hlsindonesia.com 
and you can check the conference and the list of topics. But for sure, it will be worth to watch. I will definitely attend. Thank you for your invitation. So it's www.hlsindonesia.com. That's one word: hlsindonesia.com. And the expo is on the 19th and 20th of September this year at the Jakarta Convention Center. Pat Rakian, thank you for your time. Thank you for being on this episode. Thank you so much. Uh, do you have a Twitter or email or website that people can reach you? You can reach me to my email at rakian.adibrata. It's Romeo Alpha Kilo Yankee Alpha November dot Alpha Delta India Bravo Romeo Alpha Tango Alpha at hlsindonesia.com. Pat Rakian, thank you for being on this episode. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That was counterterrorism and homeland security expert Rakian Adibrata who spoke to us today from the Indonesian Parliament. I'm Sean Corrigan, and this is Indonesia In-Depth. Please send us your comments to info at indonesiaindepth.com. That's info at indonesiaindepth.com. The Indonesia In-Depth podcast is produced by the team at Lexico Indonesia, a political risk advisory located in the heart of Jakarta. You can find Lexico Indonesia at lexicoindonesia.com.